This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to another episode of literary treks our dedicated star trek books and comics show i'm christopher jones and with me once again this week as he always is is my esteemed co-host matthew rushing matthew how is everything going this week well chris it's going pretty well here in uh in dallas uh it's a little bit warmer now it's uh i mean we are in almost the end of april which i mean we and we are in the end of april chris let's just be honest and so um that means it starts to warm up here and but we had a fantastic easter um you know and uh i was really had a great time had some great time off uh family and friends so not too much to complain about. That makes a four-day work week, um, so it's already hump day. That would be uh, nice. And uh, yeah, it is very exciting. <laughs> How about you, Chris? Oh, it's busy, busy, busy as always. Four-day work week. What is that? I do seven-day work weeks myself. That's just how I roll. Well- that is true. You are a much harder worker than I am, Chris. So um, I'm not even going to pretend like that's not the case. Oh, but I have children, Matthew. That's, you know. This is true. I do not have any itself. kids. I I only have nieces and nephews now. And, uh, well, the lucky thing is, is I just get to give them back. So um, <laughs> they're not around all the time. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the show because we have quite a bit of news today. And then in the feature, we're going to talk about an older novel, Peter David's The Captain's Daughter, as part of our preparation for One Constant Star, which will be coming up soon. And in news, the first item that we have is about one of my favorite things, the Star Trek Ships of the Line calendar. I buy the Ships of the Line calendar every single year, and I have for years And one of the the joys for me of doing Trek FM over the past few years is being able to actually get to know people like Doug Drexler, who work on this calendar and design these ships. Chris, I have to say, you know, the ships of the line calendar um, and the artwork that these guys do is is really inspired, I think. Um, It's such beautiful work. I mean, they're putting painstaking detail um, into our favorite starships. Starships we've always wanted to see before. I mean, uh, it's, it's where we first got a look at the Aventine, um, things mm-hmm. like that that you've never seen before. You really wanted to see, uh, and so I, I really do love when this calendar comes out. And this was really exciting to me, Chris, because you know they put that book out, the Ships of the Line book that had the collected of all the the different um, uh, artwork, all the different artwork they'd done, right. And, so they decided that, you know, they've been, that was 2006. So it's mm-hmm. 2014 now, and they've decided that they need to do a new edition, um, which 
for me is awesome. One, I don't have the original Ships of the Line book. And so this book is not only going to boast the original artwork from the original book, it's also going to have 75 brand new spanking images in it. Uh, and that is really exciting. That's really cool. So that's good to hear that it's not going to be a second volume, but it's actually going to be an updated edition with all of these new ships. And I understand it's also going to have new text by Mike Okuda. Which is fantastic. Um, you know, Mike does such a great job of, of, of giving you great background text on whatever ship it is that you're looking at. And as we know, too, I mean, with the Ships of the Line calendar, um, there's a lot of ships in there that not even every Star Trek fan is immediately uh, going to recognize. And so having his text there, I think is going to be really uh, great. And plus, Chris, the price of this, only $30. You know, um, so I'm hoping it's a great, I would actually like it to be a little bit bigger than the last one, personally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of maybe a little bit more coffee table size, but who knows. And uh looks like October 28th will be the drop date for that. So I- I'm pretty sure this is going to be a big deal. In fact, StarTrek.com did a whole write-up about this as well. You can even go take a look at in the show notes. So uh, it looks beautiful. I mean, even the artwork they used there to promo this is is really fantastic stuff. Yeah, it's great. We should point out that for $30, that is getting you a hardcover book, not a paperback, you know, not 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 a paperback reference book, but an actual full-on hardcover book. Now, it's also going to be available as an ebook. But this is one of those books that you you really want the physical hardcover. I don't think an ebook would cut it for me on this. The only thing, Chris, that I was thinking with the ebook is those pictures. You do a nice screenshot. And oh, that's a beautiful a good wallpaper, yeah. you know, for your uh, iPad. Uh, yeah. And on that retina display, it would just look fantastic. So right. I can see myself being tempted, you know, uh, to get that. But I'm with you. I would much rather have this as a great book just to be able to take out and kind of peruse every once in a while and just really enjoy um, the great work that these artists do. And so... I'm really looking forward to this. I was really excited to see this. Matthew, I think what you mean is that we can both see ourselves being tempted to buy both. So it would be 60 bucks for us, hardcover <laughs> and the ebook so that we can create wallpaper for our iPads and iPhones. This is true. Um, <laughs> now, oh, Pocket is just right now going, excellent. That's right. (laughs) Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Um, But, you know, luckily, though, too, usually the ebook is not as expensive. um, So you probably wouldn't be paying a full $60 for this. So that 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 is one of the things that would kind of make it tempting if it was like, a say, a $15 ebook. It's much more tempting to to kind of get that, you know, Uh, especially if you get a nice Amazon gift card from somebody or an iBooks gift card or something like that. So. No reason to not be picking this up uh, as a fan. And I, I think, too, I, for me, Chris, the main reason is really to support the the work that these artists have been doing and to show um, that there's a real validity to continuing this kind of work for Star Trek. Most definitely. I'm really glad to see they're doing this as well. So let's go on to the next story. And this one, Matthew, I was surprised to see you put this in the outline here because I thought we were a show about books and comics. This is called Star Trek Pop-Ups. Now, weren't those the, the popsicles that the ice cream truck brought and you, and you push the stick up and you can lick Kirk, Spock, and McCoy? 
I'm just going to let some of the things go there, Chris. And yes, and when I saw this, I actually did think of those, you know, those things were so good. Um, but no, okay. I don't know if anybody knows this, but um, I worked for Barnes & Noble for about three years and ran the kids department. And I have a huge affinity for, for great pop-up art. Um, and I mean children's pop-up books. And... I have some really cool ones. In fact, I have one by Robert Sabuda, who is one of the most famous pop-up artists out there. Uh, his Peter Pan that he did, and it's signed. So I was really excited when they decided that they were going to be giving us a Star Trek pop-up book. Now, they've had these for Star Wars, and they have right. been fantastic. So the thought of having a Star Trek pop-up book that I can give to my niece and nephew and show them, you know, not only the the movie era Enterprise, which is on the cover, which obviously we've talked about, the best Enterprise there is. I'm sorry to anyone else who doesn't agree. It just it. it <laughs> if you want to talk about beautiful nacelles, those are those are high quality nacelles. But uh, Chris also going to be getting things like Borg. It sounds like Borg Cube, Klingon ships, even Captain Proton is going to be in there. So. Uh, Dayton Ward is going to be super excited to get a copy of this. Oh, definitely. Uh, they should have Dayton writing the Captain Proton book. Now, these books are going to be written by Paula Imblock and Terry J. Erdman, who have given us some fantastic reference books, as well as some other books as well for Star Trek. In fact, they have that, that really clever one coming up, right, about Vulcan Love's Slave Part 2. I believe. Oh this yes, is what and it's about, Quark right? and his his uh, his pursuit of his brand new hollow program. Yeah, right, right, right. Exactly. That's uh, lust, latinum, and something else. Uh, so, That's yeah, right. It's going to be fantastic. Lust, latinum, and loss. I think it is. But yes, lust, latinum, and loss. There we go. So, so they're going to be writing this, but they should have Dayton writing the Captain Proton one. That would be awesome. That would be at really, least the Captain really Proton funny. page. <laughs> uh, it, it's great that they're doing this because, like you said, they have had them for Star Wars and. I'm hopeful, although, you know, I, I'm always hopeful over the years and it never quite seems to catch on to the extent that it should. But I'm hopeful that maybe they're starting to market Star Trek in the way Star Wars has been marketed to really reach a new audience because it's important to get, for the health of the franchise, to get kids interested in Star Trek. What is Star Trek? And, you know, and they can be into it for the pop-ups and the ships and everything when they're young. And then like we do, you know, find new things in it as they get older. We just don't get enough of this kind of stuff for Star Trek. So this is really, really good to see. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Chris. Um, I mean, we got the uh, Star Trek Visual Dictionary last mm -hmm. year, which I thought was great. We both talked about how that's a great way to introduce your kids to Star Trek. Um, as well as getting the um, Aboard the Enterprise D book that came out with the beautiful layouts that came with the CD-ROM and everything, perfect for kids as well. Um, I think this is genius move. Um, one, uh, you know, really good pop-up art is a lot of fun. Um, and it's if it's really well done, it's, it's actually really beautiful too. I think that my guess is they've seen what um, was done with the Star Wars books and they're thinking we can do this with Star Trek too. So I'm excited, and it looks like this is going to be right around the time that you'll be wanting to buy those Christmas gifts because it's coming up in November. Um, so this is this is something I think every Star Trek fan should have under the Christmas tree. 
Coming up in November, huh? I, I think they're actually just putting it out for my birthday, since that is in November. They yeah, know that's probably it, Chris. They know that I wanted a pop-up book. Yeah, yeah. You just wanted a <laughs> Star Trek pop-up. I'm, I mean, you can't lick this one, Chris. Um, there's no ice cream. Uh, it's just a book. So, and you can't really judge a book by its taste. So, oh God. Uh, yeah. I, I just, I'm not doing any sound effects. For judge a book by its taste, Matthew. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. I thought I was going to get a new sound effect. All right. Well, let's go to the next story. Now, the next one here, I talked, I shared my thoughts on this on the Ready Room this past week. We don't talk about books and comics on the Ready Room very often, but this one I just couldn't resist. And especially since I had Darren from Earl Grey as my co-host, I wanted to know what he thought about it. And now I want to know what you think about it. IDW, coming in July, is going to begin a six-part galaxy-spanning adventure called The Q Gambit, which is going to bring Q into the Abramsverse. Chris, first thought was, do we have to bring Q into everything? Second thought was, this could be a lot of fun. Uh, mainly because we've never seen Q meet Kirk. Um, so it really is a different dynamic. You know, you're getting something we, we have never seen. Um, it makes sense to me that, that Q could, could span, you know, different, uh, realities in space and time because he's all powerful and he doesn't really exist in a certain time anyway. Um, so I have no problem with that. I, I, I actually really like the idea that the Q themselves as uh, beings are unchanged in every single universe. Like, mm -hmm. they exist in all different multiverses. You know, I, I think that's a great idea. Um, it makes them even more interesting and powerful. So I think, and I'm going to hold out hope that this is going to be fantastic um, because uh, I would really like it to be. Um, and I think it could just be a really interesting time, especially seeing Kirk, Spock, and McCoy and all these kind of characters deal with Q, especially as we've kind of watched this Kirk and this Spock in this prime or in this uh, JJ verse really kind of slowly mature more into those characters we're used to. And um, because of that, I think it's going to make for a, a really interesting series. So, and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to judge something before I've read it. And so the idea sounds sound to me. And, um, you know, if it sucks after I read it, you know, that that's fine. But I'm going to hold out hope that this is actually going to be really cool. And would you say if it sucks, you mean S-U-Q-S, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because... Um, we were thinking about the title. It's the Q Gambit, and we thought that's just kind of not like the normal way they would do it. Maybe it should be the Cambit, Q A M B I T. Um, that's true. You could do that. It 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 might be something. You know, um, they're probably thinking. You know, booksellers and trying to sell this book, and people are like, how do you spell Quambit? <laughs> Quimbit. Quumbit? They won't know what it is. Yeah, exactly. So they're probably, I mean, they probably heard your idea and thought, oh, that's a good one. And then they realized this is going to be hard for people to try and figure out, you know, like 
if if they're at their Barnes and Noble and they're trying to find the um, the book on the shelf, and once it's you know completely put together as a trade paperback, and I'm sorry, do you have that Q that 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 Star Trek you know the comic book the Quambit the Quimbit <laughs> that and then you know the person's just looking at them like they're crazy. Yeah. Well, Mike Johnson, who anyone listening to the show knows, oversees the the writing of the Star Trek Ongoing series for IDW. This is what he had to say about it. He said, part of the fun of the new Star Trek movie franchise is seeing how beloved characters are different in the new timeline, but one iconic adversary remains unchanged, Q. His fascination with humanity and his penchant for mischief remain the same across the multiverse and now he's come to take the Enterprise crew on an adventure that will bring new meaning to the phrase no-win scenario. So just what you were talking about, Matthew, they remain unchanged. I have a question for you here. This is kind of what I'm thinking is going to happen. At the end of the press release about it, it says that under license by CBS Consumer Products, the Q Gambit begins when the mischievous Q sends James T. Kirk on a quest that will see the Enterprise joining forces with familiar faces from Star Trek lore, beginning with the crew of a certain space station. So it's either Abrams first Deep Space Nine or what I think may be more likely timeline crossover Prime Universe DS9 Abrams vs. TOS era Enterprise crew. I don't know. Well, and doesn't that that Abrams first TOS Enterprise just dwarf the Deep Space Nine itself? Oh, it might. I mean, it is a huge like, ship, it's isn't it? Ginormous. I mean, like the size of that sucker. It's huge. It's like a watermelon and toothpick. <laughs> um, just think about how excited Quark will be, though, to have an unlimited supply of Budweiser to serve. This is true. Uh, well, you know, is Budweiser Classic, though, really big on DS9? Well, not yet, but after Cork After Cork visits. It. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can see that, yeah. Um, you, the fact that they're going to be facing a familiar phone, it sounds like the Dominion somehow. And I would love to see, you know, this on, on the JJ-verse DS9, actually. Because we already saw, you know, Mud's daughter uh, is half Bajoran. That's uh, a really good point. Yeah. So that may, you know, we kind of talked about that. We're yeah. like, what does this mean? And so that could be something where maybe Mud will actually play a part now mm -hmm. in this. And so they've kind of been setting that all up. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that could be just something that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Uh, then kind of tying some of the things that they have kind of thrown in there and putting it all together. Now, of course, we have to deal with the fact that we're talking about two different centuries here. But of course, Q can easily transport the Enterprise to the 24th century. I don't know. We're, we're speculating. We have no idea what the story is. But yeah, I, I love the point about Mud's daughter being half Bajoran because I do remember when we saw that, and we thought, you know, they're, they could just be doing this to be cute and like throwing a Bajorian, but probably there's something more to it. And maybe they're finally going to pick that up somehow. Yeah, uh, I, I think it would be just fantastic. And, and 
you know, it, it makes it kind of interesting because, you know, a familiar space station, you know, uh, are we really just compressing the timeline here so that somebody like Cisco exists in the same kind of era yeah. as, as Kirk and all of that? I'm all for it, whatever, right? You know, it's this, the JJ verse. We're supposed to be able to do whatever we want. Yeah. So, unless they're talking about the regular station and they're just going to drop Carol Marcus off there so she can start working on the Abrams first Genesis torpedo. Um. Yes. <laughs> that, goodness. Who? I mean, goodness. Gosh, Chris, we could do just about anything. But again. I mean, I think that this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, so Q in the original TNG, they meet the Borg, one of the Federation's greatest adversaries. And, you know, with them, you know, being on the station, it'd be interesting if Q introduces this crew to Dominion. Um, and mm -hmm. because that's another one of the Federation's greatest adversaries. I mean, so... Uh, be very, very interesting to see exactly how this all plays out. Yeah, it will be indeed. So we will see. And also coming, coincidentally, in July, is the Star Trek Medical Officers special, which I suppose you are probably thinking in your mind is simply the Beverly Crusher book, right? Well, Chris, if, you, if you've seen <laughs> the cover, Beverly is prominently featured as she should be on everything um and so well done this cover designer well done you have my stamp of sufficiently exciting cover um but yes this is really exciting to me because i like the doctors of, of star trek i've always enjoyed them um and so it's going to be interesting we're going to be getting uh the emh beverly crusher um, uh, Bashir, Pulaski, with some help from Leonard McCoy and Phlox, all joining forces against time to find a cure for this deadly metamorphic disease. And so uh, it sounds really cool. Um, I don't know how they're all going to meet. I guess a holodeck <laughs> might be involved. Um, I don't know. Or some sort of crazy time travel. Who knows? But yeah. I think this will be really exciting. This, well, it's the kind of thing you can do in comics and you can kind of shrug it off and say, okay, yeah, whatever. Like if this were a novel, it might be a bit of a stretch for me to, to think about all of these doctors all coming together to solve one problem, especially if, if they actually are all together. Like if there's one room and they're all sitting around having a staff meeting, a medical staff meeting about this problem, it's going to be kind of weird. Yeah, um... You know, the, really, the only point here, Chris, that I'm really disturbed by is, is why is Pulaski involved? Who cares about <laughs> right? Pulaski? I mean, what is she doing there? Um, is she there just to make fun of Data, or is she going to call Bashir some sort of, you know, uh, freakish automaton because he's oh. genetically enhanced? She's I there mean, to make sure that no one gets too excited, you know? No one has too much fun. If If the mood of the meeting starts to rise a little bit, she's there to bring it down. Oh, I thought that's what the EMH was for. No, no, he'll make some, you know, he's there to make humorous quips about everything that's going on. Ah, ah, yes, now, that's true. Now, Flux, he'll be over there at the end of the table clipping his toenails. And then, you know, he'll he'll suggest... Cleaning his tongue? Cleaning his tongue. <laughs> and then he will suggest incorporating a bat into every solution. Which... 
strangely enough, makes him just sound like Batman. <laughs> I'm Batman. You're just looking for an excuse to do a Batman voice on the show, Matthew. Exactly. I really, really was. But it made me think of when you're like, he's going to, you know, it just made me think of the terribleness of, of uh, Batman and Robin where everything was bat something. Yeah. And Bruce Wayne, dressed as Batman, literally pulls out his bat card. It's a credit card that says bat card on it. So, you know, I'm just thinking about flocks having bats for everything. <laughs> You're going to want a bat with that. <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. Would you like a bat with that? <laughs> I can see Flocks. Like Flocks, he gets strummed out of Starfleet and he has to start working. Like at, at, He's working at like a zoo or something. No, no. He's working at like a space McDonald's and <laughs> the drive through For Klingons? He's like, would you like a bat with that? <laughs> They're only 50 cents extra. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. All right. Okay, well, back to the actual story here. Another interesting twist to this is that they're teaming up with the Calcom Tricorder X Prize, which we've talked about on the Ready Room before, I know, at some point in the past. But it's a global competition in which 30 teams are competing to develop a consumer-friendly mobile device capable of diagnosing and interpreting a set of health conditions and vital health metrics. And of course, it's inspired by the Star Trek Tricorder. And I love the fact... Now, of course, you know, they had the X Prize for, um, for commercial spaceflight, right? To develop ships for uh, the private sector. And that was a great success. I love the fact that they're doing this for a tricorder because this is something that if, if there's something behind it pushing the development like this, I think within the decade, we'll probably actually see something that resembles a Star Trek tricorder because there are already add-ons for smartphones that do a lot of the things that a tricorder does. I, I'm with you, Chris. I, I think this is great. Um, it's one of the things that's made me so sad about the space program here in the States, um, you know, basically being non-existent these days yeah. and, and how much that helped fuel all the technology that we use now. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know that the private industry does a great job, but, you know, there's just something about the way that NASA researched um, that gave us so much. I, I feel like we're we're losing out um, on on some great discoveries, um, and so I'm glad at least somebody is taking this mantle and running with it. Yeah, um, trying to get us towards a better and 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 brighter future in in this way. So Definitely. it's good to see. And the connection here with the Tricorder X Prize and this comic here, the Starfleet Medical Officers special, which is actually called Flesh and Stone, and is written by Scott and David Tipton, who, of course, are two of, of the great Star Trek comic writers, is that uh, the, the tricorder, you know, has inspired this particular story, which which centers around that technology. And yeah, I think it's just, a, I think it's a great way to promote Star Trek and promote this technological advancement at the same time. Definitely. And, you know, it was interesting. They said that um, when IDW um, came to them, you know, how, how could they say no to something so mm -hmm. brilliant? Um, the idea of teaming up all these doctors for the very first time. 
so uh, that, that we would see this. Um, I think that's pretty exciting as well. So as long as Beverly is front and center on all the covers, <laughs> um, I'm going to be a huge fan. That's all you're worried about, yeah. Well, that's all we have in news today, Matthew. Before we jump into the feature where we're going to talk about Peter David's The Captain's Daughter, let's tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Now, Audible is the best source for audiobooks that you're going to find online anywhere. They have over 150,000 titles waiting for you right now. They add hundreds of new titles every week. And of course, each week we tell you how great Audible is. But what we also like to do is to recommend a book. And today, Matthew, I thought since we're going to be talking about one of Peter David's books in the feature, I thought we would recommend another of Peter David's Star Trek books, and, and actually four of them. And these are the original four Star Trek New Frontier books. They're, they're available together in sort of an omnibus, and they're narrated by Joe Morton. And it's a really great way to get into this series if you've never read it before. Of course, there's Captain Mackenzie Calhoun, Shelby is there as his first officer from the best of both worlds. And of course, for me, you know, Robin Leffler is also a member of the Excalibur crew. I don't think she's um, on the cover, though, Chris, which is disappointing for you. It's a major oversight. I, you know, I don't Isn't know. Isn't Shelby the one that's on the co cover of one of the books? Yeah. Well, now, actually, Leffler is on the cover of one of the books, but she's kind of off in the back behind Calhoun as the captain, oh. you know, he gets to be front and center, la, 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 la. So what? You're a captain. Come on. Robin Leffler's behind you. She should be on every cover. That's yeah. I mean, <laughs> starting to sound like a Maxim magazine instead of a <laughs> Star Trek book. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess so. But um, I, I remember when these books came out, and I actually got the paperbacks when they first came out. You know, they were they were they were fairly short. Uh, the first four entries, and then it went into a proper novel series. But it was it was a fine way to get into the story actually by having these four shorter books that took you through. And for those who don't know about New Frontier. The basis of it is that it's a new ship, a new crew, and a new mission. And Peter David put this crew together, and I kind of remember at the time, it was sort of a new thing. You know, we've had other series since then, where we've had other ships and we've had other crews. But this was kind of a, of, of a, of a new thing back in the mid-90s when this came out. Star Trek New Frontier, uh, originally an Ambassador-class starship, the Excalibur, Eventually, this the Excalibur does get replaced with a galaxy-class ship as you go through the series of books. And uh, in the first one, they're being sent to Sector 221-G, which was once ruled by the vicious Thelonians. And, you know, things have descended into chaos. Captain Calhoun and his crew, uh, they must go there. They must help uh, work things out, kind of smooth over these old hatreds that are resurfacing um, there are petty tyrants with deadly weapons and, you know, they, they have to just stop various worlds from, from falling into self-destruction. So it's, if you're looking for new adventures in the Star Trek universe that go beyond the familiar characters, but you still want those connections, like I mentioned, Shelby, Robin Leffler, uh, this is a great way to get into it. Um, and you can get it in audio format. And best of all, as a Trek FM listener, 
you can get it absolutely free just for trying Audible. What you do is you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfilm and sign up. Choose Peter David's New Frontier, books one to four, which is a single title, and you can get that free. If at the end of the trial period you decide Audible's not for you, you have nothing to lose because you get to keep that book. But you're going to love Audible. If you love podcasts, you're going to love audiobooks. If you're already getting them from another source, Audible is, believe me, the best place to get them. I've been getting mine there for 14 years. No plans to stop anytime soon. And remember, too, you know, if you don't want to get New Frontier, you can actually choose any book on Audible absolutely free for trying Audible. So go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up today. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. And, of course, we thank you for supporting Audible. Well, Chris, uh, in a few short weeks, and not too long from now, we're going to be having David R. George III's one constant star coming out, filling in some of the lost era for us with the Enterprise B and her captain, John Harriman, and Demora Sulu. And so I thought it would be really interesting to kind of go back to some of the books that have um, used these characters and kind of see the, the backstory that has played out for them. And so the first book that we're going to be talking about while we're kind of do this retrospective, getting ready for the book is The Captain's Daughter, which is by Peter David. And uh, it was released back in December, actually, of 1995. It's it's crazy to think that it's been that long ago. It really is, yeah. And so, um, and this book actually, too, was a part of the original series, Numbered Series. And this was number 76. That's, again, how long ago this was for this book. It is a story of Demora Sulu, uh, a young Starfleet officer who suddenly attacks her commanding officer, Captain Harriman, and kills her in self-defense. And so Hikaru Sulu, captain of the Excelsior, really wants to determine the truth behind what happened to his daughter. All while doing that, Peter David does give us the backstory for something that we saw in Generations that we all kind of scratched our heads at, which was Sulu had a daughter. (laughs) Right. And so Peter David does... I think what can only be described as a pretty masterful job of weaving the story of Sulu having a daughter and how that happened. And so one of the, sure one of the things that we'll talk about if we feel like it kind of fits well enough with what we got in Generations um, and making mm-hmm. sense of that. So, Chris, one, you know, we, we both have been through the captain's daughter, just kind of first impressions um, after reading it. Well, before I give you my first impressions, I do want to give everyone our spoiler alert that uh, we are going to talk Danger, Will Robinson, danger. <laughs> we are going to talk about the book and what happens in the book. This is, this is a 19-year-old book, so um, hopefully if you if you haven't read it yet and you plan to read it and you'd, you'd like to do that before you listen to the episode, uh, you might want to do that. Um, if you haven't read it yet, Lottie, I can of help you. <laughs> So, so just so you know, we are going to talk about what happens here in the book because there are a number of twists in this story. So, first impressions. I I thought this was a really good book. I like you said. I think Peter David did a masterful job in this book of filling in the blanks. And right off the bat, well, not right off the bat because it's not it's not the very first thing we learn. I I just love the fact that we actually find out why her name is Demora. And and I thought the reason her name is Demora was really cool and really clever. 
Now, right off the bat, I thought that maybe this was a story about Counselor Troy because it starts out with some chocolate mousse. <laughs> it does. Um, I, I thought that it was very funny that uh, apparently Demora Sulu uh, is is as much a chocolateholic as Counselor Troy is, and uh, so good to good to know mm-hmm. that that chocoholism runs deep in Starfleet. It really does. You know, you talk about how a novel needs to have a great opening to hook you in. And this novel has a great opening. The very first sentence in the book is, if Demora Sulu had known her funeral would be in a week, she would have had the chocolate mousse. Which is, is um, I think, a trait that I noticed throughout the book that, that uh, David likes to do. He likes to tell you what's going to happen and then fill in the story because he does that a couple of times in the story. Um, and it's a, it's a fun, like kind of like a literary device to kind of give you an idea that, you know, this is going to happen and this is how we get there. But he doesn't really tell you what's going to happen. He just hints, you know, there's the other moment where if Harriman knew that Chekhov was going to slug him and then, but it takes you a long time before you get to that moment where that happens. Right. Exactly. Um, what I thought was really interesting, it, it, it's interesting in, in this first section, the, the book is actually broken up into five different sections, so that's kind of how we're going to talk about them. So the the first section is called Death, and, and it's really going to deal with how this happens to Demora to set up the rest of the story. Um, but as much as they, do, you know, he does to really set up Demora, I felt like this first section is belongs as much to Harriman yeah. as well and his struggle mm-hmm. I mean and we, now I'll say this we have seen a lot since generations comes that came out you know in 94 um kind of about Harriman so you take that back and rewind this is probably one of the first things that we ever saw yeah. literature wise so I was trying to kind of put my mindset there it's hard instead right? of here where I've kind of mm-hmm. seen you know, that kind of stuff. It's difficult to, to do that, but yeah, I think you're really right. Is. Like the, the title of the section is death. And I think it's two things. It is the death of Demora, but it's the death of Harriman as well. I mean, he doesn't physically die, but it's like his whole spirit and everything mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. makes him a person and makes him a captain died when Captain Kirk was lost under his watch. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and there's this great line uh, of what he's thinking of, and he says, um, he, he's talking about Kirk and thinking about Kirk, and he says, now I get to be known as the captain whose first mission destroyed the indestructible Kirk, mm-hmm. the man who had dis- survived a thousand dangers until he found the one thing he couldn't overcome, the command of Captain John Harriman. And the the idea that he feels like his crew, you know, refers to him as the flying dutchman yeah um you know just a terrible omen for for any sailor um or or sailor stars as well and uh i i really like this i i love kind of getting into this guy's head because you can tell that there's he he wants to be something different he wants to live actually 
into the legend of somebody like a Kirk. You know, he want that's where he would like to be. And he feels like I think in some ways his dream has been crushed of that ever happening because the only thing he'll ever be remembered for is the guy who took the starship out that wasn't right quite ready because Starfleet rammed that idea down his throat and he couldn't save Kirk. And that's what we get in here as well is that Starfleet wanted him to go do this because we don't get that in the movie, right? In the movie, we just get that, oh, yeah, the Enterprise B is going to go and do a little run around the solar system. And eh, it's not it's not a big deal that the ship's not ready because we're not really going to go anywhere, right? And we don't really get the feeling that Harriman is resistant to this idea in the movie, but the book here actually adds a lot more depth to what was going on for him uh, during the events surrounding that that little flight that that resulted in the loss of Kirk. Well, and it makes so much more sense, I think to add some depth to this character, but just the storyline itself that, I mean, no captain would want to take their ship out half-assed. I mean, that's really what happens to the poor guy, well, and it's not except really... Except Captain Homer Simpson of the USS Half-Assed. Well, that is, that's very true. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, luckily he doesn't ever leave the star system or the planet, because he can never get off planet. <laughs> Um, but I just, you know, it, it, it makes so much more sense and it really kind of creates, um, a, the beginning of this tension that Starfleet is feeling with this transition from this kind of these legendary figures to a new generation. I don't say the next generation, a new generation, which I, I think is something we're going to probably talk about maybe a little bit later, Chris, but I, I didn't quite... At least from the one admiral's point of view, um, eh, Harriman's dad, to be exact, yeah. I felt was um, it didn't make sense to me, and and maybe it was more there's some sort of jealousy between Harriman's dad. They call him Blackjack. Yeah, and so then there actually was the reality of this kind of like. I mean, maybe Kirk just slept with this woman or something, or Chekhov, you know, <laughs> as you guys talked about in the ready room the other week, you know. Well, Chekhov has a reputation of a ladies' man. Yeah, you know, so. I don't know. I took, I wasn't crazy about the character of Black Jack Harriman here either, who we find He's out. He's just a classic badmiral. He is a classic badmiral. And we find out that his name isn't actually Jack. His name is John. He's John Harriman Sr., and Captain Harriman that we know is John Harriman Jr. They call him Blackjack because he was a, a legendary card player at the Academy. I wasn't crazy about the character really because it's one of those things where at the end of the book, we end up basically with a high-stakes game of poker between the Enterprise B and the Excelsior. And, of course, the guy calling the shots is Blackjack Harriman who's an expert at playing cards. And he was actually on his way to a conference where he was going to actually have to play cards against somebody, which I thought was kind of kind of corny as well. Uh, but what I did get from him, though, is you talk about maybe a little bit of jealousy there, but I also saw him as representing sort of the old guard. You know, Starfleet is changing. One thing that's interesting in this book is that we start to see how 
Starfleet is still, even in the 23rd century, developing its framework of operations. Uh, you know, recently we've talked about Rise of the Federation, the Enterprise books, where we're seeing the Federation start to come together and Starfleet begin forming. And they haven't yet worked out things like the Prime Directive and how everything's going to work together. And what we see in here is the, the, the events that bridge Kirk's time, where the captain always goes on the away mission, and Picard's time, where the first officer goes down and the captain's supposed to stay on the ship and be safe. And so I see Admiral Harriman here as also representing sort of that old guard that's very grumpy and sort of like, you know, the get off my lawn guy <laughs> to the, to these younger <laughs> Starfleet officers and his son, Captain Harriman is one of those, uh, is part of that generation, but Captain Kirk and Chekhov and Sulu and all these guys are the ones who really represent what he sees as sort of the problem with Starfleet. Yeah, it, it, it did really create an interesting idea that, um, that somebody wouldn't see Kirk as a hero and that that crew is a hero. Whereas the opposite side, which is really interesting when we get to when Janice Rand enters, when she's taking care of Demona, we're just jumping around all over the place at this point, but we it's, are, yeah. it's an important conversation for the book um, that she talks about, you know, if, if, if the enterprise, if you needed something done, you called the enterprise and we all knew it. We were the best ship. We were the best crew. Um, that any captain ever had, as Captain Sisko would say. Um, but, you know, Kirk would would say the same about his crew. They were the best ship. They were the best crew. And if you did need something done, if something came up, you wanted the Enterprise on the front lines because you knew somehow, some way, Kirk was going to pull a magical solution out of his butt and you're, you were going to be fine. Um, and mm -hmm. that... that who, what I really just got from the, the the Blackjack character was, I think it was more to me, this insane jealousy of that he wasn't that person. Yeah. And that's why, because he was the kind of person whose authority was being usurped by somebody like Kirk, who maybe just had the better ideas, mm -hmm. you know, um, it was the one who was out there making things happen. Whereas he's the guy at the back just not making history basically mm -hmm. when he first showed up on the ship when he first showed up on the enterprise b and he walked in and and this is when we find out that he is captain harriman's father he seemed like he was there to be sort of the, the at least he seemed like a caring father at, at that first time right because harriman is down on himself and he tells one of the first things he tells his father is I'm afraid I'm being regarded as something of a jinx. And his father says that, you know, these things happen. And he says, but what's giving this thing its subtext is the Kirk connection. And then we get to what we've been talking about here with how he perceives Kirk. And he says, I'm telling you right now, and I can say this as an admiral, not as your father, that you're 10 times the officer Kirk ever was. Kirk was a cowboy, a troublemaker, Thought he owned the galaxy. Thought he had all the answers. Second-guessed regs all the time. Did what he felt like doing and managed to come up smelling like a rose because he had admirers in the right places. And actually, that, I think, plays to what you say, that he did feel that his power was being 
usurped by Kirk and being an admiral, he didn't like that. But to say Harriman is 10 times the officer Kirk ever was, I, know, I shook my head when I read that. I don't know about that. Yeah. Well, and, and I that was where I just knew, and that's where I began to get that kind of sense of, of jealousy that Blackjack seems to have. Whereas Harriman, John Harriman, doesn't have any of that. You know, mm-hmm. I think for him, the thought of of being Kirk is is what drives him being somebody like Kirk is what drives him I think he still sees him as a model yeah um uh, you know officer soldier negotiator all those things that's what he sees himself as wanting to be uh he just doesn't know he's going to get there and so mm-hmm. I think that was really fantastic and of course they are on a mission they they go to this planet um the enterprise b and they are on an away mission, which Harriman decides to lead, even though he has the conversation in his head with the idea that he's not, he's not really supposed to be leading them, but it's still, at this point, the captain's prerogative. And he, of course, takes it. Um, and they can't figure out what's going on. And, and the next thing they know, they're being attacked by a deranged, naked Demora Sulu who looks like a rabid animal. Yeah. And who literally beats the crap out of Harriman. Well, and his only recourse is to kill her. Is to kill her, yeah. Now, before we get to that point, though, one thing that's also interesting in this first section here, even though it's titled Death, is that we get to know a little bit about Demora. Because basically, what we, we saw her in Generations, and we knew that she was Sulu's daughter, but not much else, right? So it was really nice to get some background. I think Peter David did a good job here of making us feel some connection to her before the events that you just mentioned where where Harriman actually has to shoot her. And they they also lure her down. Well, this planet, they receive a distress signal and it's in Chinese, like a dialect of Chinese, which was kind of weird. And that kind of enticed her to want to go on the away mission in the first place. And and part of it was that we, we find her as sort of a dreamer, like wanting to follow in the footsteps of her father because she's heard all these adventures. And, and at this point in the book, we don't yet know the whole backstory of how she was born, you know, and how she came together with her father in the first place. And so it's interesting up front of her, you know, like, like I got the feeling that like she wanted to go back to, th- this is what I, I wrote down in my notes. And I don't know if I felt this way as the story went on, but just initially when she talks about all the stories that her father's told her about, you know, the Wonderland planet and the the white rabbit and all these different things that he experienced I almost felt like the years of Kirk's first five-year mission was like the childhood for Star Trek. And then Damara is living in an, in another time and like she wants to go back to that childhood and she can't. And maybe it does connect a little bit, actually, if I think about it, what we learn in the next sections of the book about her actual childhood and maybe the things that she missed out on is something I think she was trying to seek all the time. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. Um, and uh, I, I really, it, it, it actually even plays into 
Uh, some of the things, you know, it, it's funny because she mentions that amusement planet and it gets mentioned again. And then it's used mm-hmm. as a catalyst for actually the, the, the whole basis of the, the protagonists and their plan. Right. Um, which I thought was really interesting. Very subtle. It was very subtle, um, right? And, you didn't even well think done. about it. When you when you finally got to the point where it was actually used, you almost didn't remember that it was even mentioned up front. Yeah. And then when you did, you were like, oh, well, duh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you really didn't think about that. So, um, I, yeah, I'm with you. I think it was that was something that was really well done. I also just, to, you know, there's a couple quick notes in here I had. Just in general about Peter David's writing style, I I've never read Peter David before, which some people probably will be oh, like, really? <gasps> you know. So this was my get first off this foray. show, Matthew. I know, <laughs> get off the shed. Um, and so, but I love that he references the funniest things, like when Demora is talking to Maggie um, on the Enterprise B, and she says. They're talking about singing gamblers because she oh, references guys and line. dolls. Yeah. She's like, well, it was the same era also that had shows about singing cats, a singing barber who killed people and turned them into meat pies. What can I tell you? It was an odd and perverse time. <laughs> I know. It's a great <laughs> like, line. The f- it just made me think, though, that like, would she really be referencing these things? Because, well, I mean, maybe that's like four, 300 years ago yeah, for her. But remember that her father had this fascination with all of these ancient things. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if he had exposed her to these musicals. Yeah, I guess that's that's true. Yeah. Uh, but it was just funny. It was, just, it was uh, funny. It it. it David uh, really does seem to have a very lighthearted nature to his stories. It's, I mean, there's some serious parts here, but really, at least this one, this is a full-on um, adventure romp for a lot of it. And so he really plays that entire spirit well. And in some ways, made me think of this book a lot more in the genre of a TOS original series mm-hmm era than necessarily movie era. Yeah, it felt that way. I had to keep reminding myself that where we were on the timeline in the present day events in this book. Uh, Now, the book does jump around through time quite a bit. And the, the, but it did feel like an original series, uh, TOS television series era story very much. Talking about the humorous moments in here, Matthew, though, I, I, it, it, early on in the book, I thought maybe this book should have been called Meet the Blumbergs because <laughs> yes. They, yes. they go down to this planet where they receive the distress signal. They find this written language on something and the the officer, Zon, says, none of the symbols were anything vaguely Terran. It corresponds to the known written language of an ancient, apparently long dead race called and then tapers off. And then another officer, Thompson, says, called what? And then Zahn says, the Blumbergs. And Herman's <laughs> like, say again? They're called what? Uh, the Blumbergs, sir. The Blumbergs? What kind of name for an alien race is that? <laughs> it was too funny. Oh, uh, but it really they're is. named after the, the scientist who first discovered this dead civilization. So, which it was, is very, very funny. 
um and I, it definitely goes to show that peter david has a, has a great sense of humor and so well and well, in such like, a heavy story it's great that he was able to insert yeah. these humorous moments oh yeah it really does help for sure um and and i think as we transition out of this section you know um she is is killed by Harriman, and um the excelsior is is um contacted and they're both basically making their way back to earth mm-hmm. at this point and the story jumps to give us the backstory on how sulu meets the woman who is going to be his daughter's mother mm-hmm. so basically it's how i met your mother in space sulu style <laughs> exactly so um or should we say Indiana Sulu? Indiana, um, because this fe- felt just like an Indiana Jones episode. It very, you know? very much did. Uh, in fact, it felt like the beginning of the Temple of Doom. Yeah, when they're when they're in oh, uh, yeah. Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very much like that. Yeah, um, Section Two definitely feels like Indiana Jones. So the main okay, this is the part that I wanted to ask you, uh, Chris. The main setup is is a city in the middle of the Sahara that's been created. And the whole city is created that it is a representation of old earth, mm-hmm. basically. Um, the way everything worked then, this whole thing is basically a pleasure city for you to visit and really kind of immerse yourself in. It's Riza on Earth. Except even more so in the sense that they're really recreating. It, it, it would be like visiting Williamsburg, but as a pleasure planet. Where anything goes, you you can have all sorts of adventures. I mean, people actually go there in costume. It's like basically a cosplay um, wonderland <laughs> for the 23rd century. Wow. And I don't know about you, but this didn't fit at all with what I know about Star Trek and the future. It was kind of weird, yeah. I'll admit. But it worked for me in the story. Just for the story, I didn't have any problem with it, but it did feel really weird that on Earth in the 23rd century that this place would exist and, and that it would be set up. It, it It's something you would expect to find out in the backwaters of the Alpha Quadrant somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I think I, this section, as, as fun as it is, um, Sulu meeting this this woman susan um having this rompous adventure thinking he's being set up by Chekhov the whole time just because Chekhov knows he wants to have some fun this is set in between that time period where the enterprise is being refit and the crew kind of doesn't have a lot to do as they're kind of waiting for that to happen mm-hmm. um they're basically on leave because they've had their big huge five-year mission and so they're getting to take all this leave now, and Zulu is bored. And Chekhov, which is the refrain you will hear often in this book, which is, be careful what you wish for, mm-hmm. you might get it. Um, That's an old Russian so I, saying, Matthew. Exactly, exactly. No, no uh, it's not. I, it's not. Chekhov admits it's Polish. <laughs> which I thought was great that Chekhov's like, of course I know everything is not Russian. You know, it's Polish. Uh, it's yeah. <laughs> I just Slavic, like to say yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I love that uh, Sulu and uh, Chekhov are the first gay couple in Star Trek going on vacation together. Um, it's it's really cute. But so of all the characters in this book, 
in the writing and in the voice, Chekhov was the most spot on of all. Don't you think? I thought Chekhov was just fantastically done. And the other characters were done well. But like with Sulu, like I had trouble actually hearing Sulu in Sulu's voice when I was reading the book. It just felt like this is a person delivering the, the lines that are needed for the story, but I didn't feel like the heart and soul of Sulu in it. But I did definitely feel Chekhov here. And not just because he writes it with the W and the V reverse and that stuff, but little little things, the little expressions, like, oh, now you're the expert on this and that. You know, it just it really felt like Chekhov. Yeah, he does a really good job. In fact, this is the point where the story, you know, obviously set right after the five-year mission. It, it definitely feels so much like that. It, mm -hmm. it feels like that kind of checkoff. Um, you know, because we don't get much checkoff in the movies. Um, and so we don't really kind of get a feel for what he's like then, how he's grown as a character. So this does feel so spot on. And, uh, you know, circumstances happen sulu thinks he's a part of a huge game that's been uh created by Chekhov to help him have a good time yeah. and it turns out this is not a game it's reality that he's caught in did you which was was the nice twist did you ever buy into it at all did you think at the beginning did you think that maybe this was a setup by Chekhov? Uh, no i never well, bought that this I. was a setup yeah neither so did. uh again i i think to me this is just the, really the weakest section of the book um it's it's fun, but I kind of was bored because I knew, I mean, the whole section, I just knew yeah. everything that was going to happen in it. There was no surprise. But I think as the reader, we're not supposed to think it's a setup, though. No, it's, I don't think it's so, only, but I, it would have been... But it stretches too long. Like, there's a point at which Sulu is still thinking it's a setup and like, wow, Chekhov, he really pulled out all the stops on this one. And I'm thinking... There's a gigantic guy holding a hot ember right in front of your face while you're tied to a chair and you and you think it's still part of a setup. And then even when when Ling Sui or Susan Ling or whatever name you know she uses here and there crashes through the ceiling to rescue him, he still then he says, Now I know it's a setup. I'm like, no, it's not. What makes you think Chekhov has the ability to pull this off? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, the the elaborateness of it is just insane. Yeah. Um, the only thing I really liked in this section, Chris, uh, I'm, we do meet the mother. Mm -hmm. So, yes, uh, How I Met Your Mother, Sulu edition. Um, and a poor guy barely even remembers how they had sex. So, Well, the thing that tipped me off, though, like, was that initially when Chekhov and Sulu were sitting in the, the little cafe together and the yellow umbrella was there. That really, yeah, I, I knew something uh, was coming up. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, a goat ran through and there was a real pineapple, which I still don't know the answer to. The blue French horn also tipped end. me off. Yeah, yeah. That was when they mentioned that on the wall, yeah. I, I was like, come on, stop ripping off, you know, how I met your mother. Yeah. Um, but, um, the, my favorite part here was just his his nice nod to Casablanca, um, where he goes to the uh, corner of Humphrey and Ricks, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so I, I appreciated that he threw that in there um, for me as a and huge Casablanca fan. I also like when the the bartender cannot understand what he's saying when he keep he keeps oh, asking gosh. for vodka, yeah. 
vodka. Vodka. And then he finally says, just give me a screwdriver, no orange juice. And then the bartender's Which, like, then the guy's like, well, if I don't oh! put orange juice in it, the only thing left will be. And then Chekhov's like, right. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, what I thought was interesting, too, is the sections called first date. That's all that happens. They have like two days. If you want to call that a date, I mean. Yeah, exactly. I was a little, huh, whew, if that's Peter David's idea of a date, I don't know when I want to know what his idea of marriage is. Um, and so, but uh, again, you know, he barely even remembers, honestly, that they had sex. And so uh, it is a huge surprise, obviously, when the, this daughter does show mm-hmm. up. And so strangely enough, you know, instead of going, you know, straight to, you know, the parenthood or finding out a you know about the daughter we go to the memorial service in the present and did you find it so weird the, to structure the book that way i actually think it was needed in order to break up mm-hmm. the meeting of the mother and then the meeting of the daughter i i thought it worked well yeah. um and, and so i i think it made sense to have the tiered structure where you have you know um present past present past yeah. present yeah. I, I think that that worked very well um and obviously gave us a great outline so thank you peter david you had us in mind at literary track yeah so we didn't even have to do an outline that. for today's show did we exactly <laughs> um so i i love uh, you, this is a very short scene it's only two chapters mm-hmm. um you know harriman does a great job of memorializing demora and you can tell the the pain that he's feeling, um, not only losing Kirk, but now another legend's daughter, uh, the weight that he's feeling is, is just immense. I, I really feel sorry for this guy. Mm-hmm. And then Chekhov kicks his ass, or at least tries to, um, and they get in this huge kerfuffle right after the memorial service. And uh, I just thought, goodness, this this poor Harriman, he cannot catch a break. I'm really hoping at this point when I'm reading the story there's some redemption for him. Yeah, and it comes at the very, very end, right? I mean, we, we get the Harriman exactly. that we're expecting for most of the book. And then at the end, finally, it's it's like he starts a recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really just that he grows a pair uh, and stands up to his dad, which, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of relationships just in real life... Um, there's that time when you have to stand on your own. Yeah. And he really, well, he takes that. And this is again, where for me, I just really saw that, that, that jealousy that the blackjack has for that, that generation, mm-hmm. that crew that, that, um, Harriman doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And he's taken it so far that, that, you know, he's the one acting insane. He's yeah. the one being strangely mutinous and retarded in this story it's not it's not john right do you think that that could have played out the same if this admiral had not been his father if it had been another admiral that was doing exactly the same thing but wasn't his father i think it could it could definitely have happened that way i think it's more effective when it's his father Mm -hmm. who can also say to him i'm the one who's been picking up for your lack of whatever 
for all these but years. But any admiral really could say that. Tension. Any admiral could say, like, you were my favorite officer and I've really been, you know, I got you your command exactly. and everything. Exactly. But something about it that being his son father. Dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. It m- makes it sting all the more, I guess. Uh, and, and Chris, I think you could probably relate to this too. Just any son can. That that time when a father might have said something they shouldn't have to you. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it brings that home for any guy. Yeah. Um, that that feeling because we all want to either live up to our dads or be better than them mm-hmm. so i mean that's just the way it goes it, you know you either want to be your dad or do you want to be better than him so um it, it it's a it's a good psychological conundrum for harriman to be facing um to pull the reader in mm-hmm. to the psychology of the, of the harriman character and make him more dynamic mm-hmm. by the end of the story yeah so I, again, that's the I think that's the thing that I'm I'm noticing at least here in this story. Peter David excels in the psychology of the character, um, and kind of yeah. creating a rounded, fuller character than one you might know. So. And I, I also did like how he handled Sulu in this short bit here at the memorial, where I mean, you know, Sulu is is extremely angry with Harriman. And and Harriman, when he finally talks to Sulu, before Chekhov goes after him, right? When he finally talks to Sulu, you know, Harriman is expecting great anger from Sulu, but Sulu controls himself and says, it's never easy to lose a crew member. You know, under circumstances like these, you did the best you could. It's all right. And of course, you, you know, and Harriman knows that it's not all right. And it's not all right with Sulu what happened, but... I mean, Sulu showed the demeanor of a captain there, and I thought showed some compassion for Harriman. Oh, definitely. Um, I I think that it was one of the best scenes for Sulu for me. The the way that he's able to rise above, um, and think of Harriman as a man and a captain, mm-hmm. and how much of a struggle this, and to think too. I've got to think that Sulu is thinking to himself, put him, put, put myself in, in Harriman's shoes. What would it be like to be responsible for the loss of, or feel the responsibility for the loss of Kirk, even though it's not his fault. Mm-hmm. And now my daughter, which for all we know, for everything that Starfleet has looked at, he, he did the only thing he could do. Um, and so, uh, making those life and death decisions is, you know, as Kirk would say, you want to sit in that chair, you know, that that's what it means. And so I, I like it a lot. One more little thing in this section that I also liked is we just talk about how Peter David calls back to different elements within Star Trek. I like the fact that he did drop in the line when they're trying to, you know, Uhura and everyone are trying to contact the the former Enterprise crew members they say, we weren't able to let Scotty know in time. We got a message out to the Janolan. It's transporting him to a retirement community at the Norpin colony. And I thought that was great just to place this in times that we know that this is somehow before the, it was whatever timeline, whatever year he was being transported. And we know that the Janolan crashes on the Dyson Sphere. And then in Relics in TNG, they pull him back. So it was just a nice little reference in there. Yeah, and that's one thing I do want to mention, Kristen, and I was a little disappointed with 
as something in this book as well. I did not like the way that the timeline was represented. Mm. There's not enough time in the movie era, I think. I think uh, David plays it much more like it's only like six years Mm. of movie era time, it seems like, instead of it being more like another 20 years. Um, you know, that, that it, 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 we know that Kirk and, 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 and the Enterprise after the, um, the motion picture go on another five year mission. Mm-hmm. Um, we also know they're sent out again after Star Trek five on another mission. So, and uh, there's a lot more time. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, and you, you don't get that sense of history through this movie era. It seems too compressed. Yeah. Like, that they saved the whales and then well, that's the thing they, I was gonna you know, it, I was yeah. gonna point out. Yeah, I do agree with you on that because I, I did I did stop myself a number of times to think, okay, now this is where this falls on the timeline because there is the scene where Damara and it happened this did happen a little bit too suddenly, right? Damara is having this conversation with her father after she had wandered into the Kobayashi Maru simulation and the academy by herself and then they're having this conversation and it's not quite clear how much time passes and then sulu's gone and then you realize that that's the moment where they stole the enterprise like janice rand comes in and and right. she's like they stole the enterprise and where's like they they what how do you steal a starship and then she's in the apartment or she's in i guess it's an apartment and there's the storm and the probe is there. And then she sees the bird of prey fly underneath the Golden Gate Bridge from her apartment window, which was really convenient. And yeah, it oh, yeah. It, it does I feel mean, like there's way too much. There are too many familiar events that we know happening in a time period that feels too compressed. That That's definitely yeah, true. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that really does kind of move us into that fourth section of parenthood. Um and no, I'm not talking about the fantastic TV show with Monica Potter and, and Lauren Graham. Uh, I am talking about the the finding out that uh, you've got a baby. You're a baby daddy, Sulu. You're a baby daddy, uh, Sulu. <laughs> exactly. So this is really an interesting section because we, we kind of learn, okay, Scotty says to Kirk, you know, uh, in generations, uh, you know, you always say that if something is important, you make the time. Right. And this is the point of the story. I like this story over, overall, but this is not how I pictured Sulu having a kid. I I really did picture the fact that Sulu actually had a real family, that he had gotten married, had a kid, he had made the time. Yeah, that's what I thought too. A child. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I... So, this is fine, but it, honestly, still in my head canon, you know, since we you go on what you, you have in the movies, the books are just mm-hmm. there to fill in if you want them to. I kind of disregard this whole book just because of that. Well, I love the book. It's a great book, yeah. but I, I just don't, I, I don't, I don't picture Sulu being a, a single dad. Like, I, I, the way that Scotty made it sound was that mm-hmm. he knew that Sulu had been a dad. You know, Kirk is just kind of too busy being a starship captain and saving the universe for him to pay attention to the fact that somebody in his crew might have a family yeah. like that. Well, but I, I but on the I, other I hand, I, I 
I think it kind of works because Sulu's a single dad in this book, but he's a reluctant single dad, and he really wants to get back out to the stars. But also, when they say, if something's important to you, you make the time, I think that it meshes with what Peter David did here, because initially, Sulu wants to send Damara to a boarding school in Washington, and so he can go out because he was going to be the first officer on the Bozeman. And obviously he wants to be a captain one day. And so being the first officer on the Bozeman would have been the next big step for him. Of course, it worked out well for him in the end, right? Because he got to be captain of the Excelsior. But it, well, and, and also, he didn't get you know, in a time loop. That's what I was, was going to say. He didn't get caught in a time loop. <laughs> but but he, does, he realized that... Demora was important to him, and so he made the time in his life to take care of her and raise her. And so I still think that it works, you know, because if something is important to you, you make the time for it. But I did, like you, always think that he probably got married. And in fact, when I started in on the book, because I had never read this book before, when I started in on the book, I was thinking, and even when it said part two for section two first date, he was going to meet his wife and they were going to actually get married. And, you know, I wasn't expecting the whole Indiana Jones one night stand thing. And then Tamara showing up at his door seven years later because her mother had been killed. I wasn't expecting that at all, but I can kind of reconcile it. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, and I can too. Um, I, I guess I just wanted to think better of Sulu, and, and, and it was interesting to watch him kind of deal with the, the idea of feeling um, honor-bound because of, of the culture that he really holds on to, uh, his Japanese heritage mm-hmm. of, of, of doing what is right, even if he doesn't want to. And, but that turns into yeah. something else, but that the, really in the beginning... It, it's him doing his duty. It's doing what is honorable, and, and so the, I think I think that's a really interesting thing. And, and watching him slowly mature into a, a father was interesting as well. Mm-hmm. It's so funny that um, you know Chekhov and him are talking at the beginning there, and he says, "I'm going to do what's right for her." her Sulu said, "It's just that you and I might have different definitions about what is right." And, and Chekhov says, "Actually." I don't think we do. We simply uh, uh, both won't admit it. That's all. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that you know, it, it's really funny to watch Chekhov, who is the uh, uh, you know confirmed bachelor as well, uh, giving him parenting advice. <laughs> um, well, Chekhov says only someone smart enough, smart enough to know about children knows not to have them. Basically, yeah, like yeah, right. Um, so. I, I also, I, I think it's interesting how it mirrors Kirk a little bit, though, because the Kirk of, the older Kirk of the films, ha, you know, he has found out that he has a son, he's matured a lot, he's a lot more like a parental figure, more like a father figure than the TOS Kirk, and it's sort of the same thing that we see here Con- within the confines of this book because of the time jumps that we have. The Sulu that we see at the very end of the book really has become that person as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I, I, I agree with you. I think it, it, it does fit. It fits these characters well at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as she's growing up, they, they, they become closer. They, they start to grow closer. And then there's this thing that happens with them where they have this fight. And um, she and her, her father are talking and he says the, the completely wrong thing, which is he admits basically I took responsibility for you because it was the only honorable course to right. me. And realizing that he's he's kind of really destroyed everything he built with her. Yeah, well, she says, I and thought it was because you loved me. And then he said exactly. it's both, and but she doesn't believe him. Yeah. Right. And it's at that point she says that she wants to join Starfleet um, uh, 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 just a couple of days later. Well, it's not the first time she's mentioned it, but here, this is when it's like really serious, right? That right. This is what she's going to do. But I thought that was interesting, too, because it's also the space where they start to grow apart. Because, you know, she tells him later on, look, I, I, I resented you for... For staying with me because I knew that your greatest destiny was to be on a starship and be doing these great things. And then when you did leave, I resented you for abandoning me. And so that this is the kind of the the, the frustration of, of being a child um, and growing up and, and yeah. um, feeling like a burden at any point mm-hmm. um, is it, a very uh, damaging thing for it. Well, and it's also a challenge for a parent as well to the balance between not making a child feel that way, but also teaching them responsibilities and, and that there has to be a a framework to a relationship and to life as well. It's, it's a really, really big challenge here. And I think that's where it shows with Sulu here of the fact that Demora just shows up when she's seven years old out of the blue and he has to just kind of suddenly become a father he ha- it's that balance is never easy for anyone as a parent it's 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 extremely difficult uh, he actually says in the book that like everyone wants to be the best parent they can be but no one knows how and i know less than most and i think it's it's absolutely true you know you want to be the best parent but there's nothing that can prepare you to be a parent and that it plays out here anyway. It's it's a really difficult balance, and and he obviously made that mistake in what he said to her because, as he admitted, he's even less prepared than most people. Right, and that leads us into that last section called "Life After Death," where we've all known obviously that Demora is not dead. That's the point of the book, um, and so Sulu decides to go uh, and do pretty much what Kirk did. Um, with the Enterprise and basically steal a starship so that he can go to a forbidden zone and figure out what happened to his dead friend. So I think it's very interesting that this story, in some ways, Sulu is playing out the events of Star Trek. Yeah. You know, the end of Star Trek Two and, and Star Trek Three, but in his in his own way. Yeah, completely. And actually, that's something I wanted to ask you about. Did Did you feel that the story mirrored Kirk taking the Enterprise to the Genesis planet too much? Um, I don't think too much. I, I think it's good symmetry. Okay. Um, 
I don't think it it's it's overly blatant enough to where I'm just like, oh my god, seriously, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't give you that feeling. So I mean, I you could definitely overbear this story with that. I think there's enough allusion to what's happening that this is kind of you know Sulu's moment of of triumph you know like yeah his his defiance of starfleet to do what he knows is is right for his friend what his daughter i thought um, it was uh, i thought that peter david here skated a little bit close to maybe overdoing it because the conversations with the admirals and the the setting course and you know this kind of well Sulu takes a little bit different tag to it, though. Like, he doesn't tell Chekhov and Uhura what he's going to do because he... But he says, like, you know, if I let you know what I was going to do, then I know you'd try to come with me. So he does he does push them away. I guess maybe he remembers what Kirk did. And he's like, Kirk's, Kirk told us you don't need to come with me, but we had to do it. So I'm not even going to give them the option in this case. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think that they they I think he skates the line, I think he skates close enough. Um but it, it doesn't ruin the story. No, for it me, doesn't, yeah. Um at all. Uh I think if the second section here mm-hmm. doesn't ruin the story for me, this doesn't at all. But um, but but so. the madman also has similarities to Khan as well in that he's wanting to get revenge, but 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 it's a yeah, lighter uh, version than, than yeah, that. yeah. It, it's it's a lighter version, and he also has a huge profit motive for what he's doing too, which yeah. is we'll get into that real quick. Is is he is taking that um, amusement park technology of cloning and creating something, and they are trying to be able to create a an army so they can sell clones so basically he's a cheap version of the Kaminoans from star wars that's what i was thinking the Um, whole time i was reading it yeah yeah which is i mean which is funny because this is before the uh the prequels came out or yeah this is before the prequels came out and so um you know we hadn't heard of Kaminoans yet but it really is like a very cheap version of of what they do um, and that's what he's trying to do because uh, the Tholian assembly is is very interested in in buying right. the soldiers. Well, well it was just so. like it was like Star Wars, right? Should we sh- like you said we should flip it around? With Star Wars was like this because it did come later that yeah the Tholians are going to build a clone army so that they can defeat the Federation exactly whoever they yeah. want. So I I really liked though the end of this because basically I I felt like this is the resolution between father and daughter mm-hmm. and then father and son, the, the familial relationships that have been kind of driving the story. Um, and I, I love the, 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 the line that she says, you know, I can't believe it takes us almost dying to have the conversation that we should have had a long time ago yeah. to say what we need to say. Apparently they just need to listen to more John Mayer. <laughs> he tells you, you just need to say what you need to say. And then I really did like, the the resolution with uh, Harriman and his his dad, you know, I love the the. In fact, I even love the the um the confrontation that they have, where he says, uh, 
Feel free to court-martial me and bring everyone on the Excelsior up on charges too if you wish. Of course, full testimony will be offered. As it stands, a rescue mission overseen by one Admiral Harriman, aided and abetted by a captain of some renown who is credited with, among other things, saving the Kittimer Conference, not to mention the entire Earth. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, going on, the, you know, this we got our crewmen back. Uh, we also found out there was this whole illegal use of alien technology that the Tholians really wanted. So, eh, I don't really know what you're going to do about that, Dad. Suck it. Right. Um, or, it was and he gives him awesome. an option. He says, or yeah. we can tell things how they also happened that you and Admiral were ready to fire on a defenseless Federation starship. Right. Uh, which, uh, gotta say... Not a bad card play there, Harriman. Not a bad card play, Junior. Um, yeah, me basically outwitted his dad, which mm -hmm. I, I love. And um, Captain John Harriman did what all of us have so often wanted captains to do. When you have the Admiral or the Galactic High Commissioner or whoever it is on uh, the bridge yes. disturbing your mission... He actually, his dad, the admiral, sits down in the command chair, won't move, won't leave the bridge, wants to blow up the Excelsior. So what does Harriman do? He calls down and he has them beam the admiral out of the captain's chair directly into the brig. That was best awesome. move ever. I'm gonna, <laughs> I am gonna beam your ass into the brig. <laughs> That was fantastic. That's one of the best scenes in this book. Um, and so, yeah, I, it, this, it, it really does a great job, I think, in, in the end uh, of wrapping up the storylines that we've been talking about um, and giving a real sense of, of finality to um, uh, the story that, that's been happening, as, as well as I think, to me, and I'm really hoping to see this as we move with Harriman now we're going to be talking, Chris, uh, about uh, Harriman later on in Insertments Among the Ruins, uh, and then we'll talk about it in One Constant Star. So I'm, I'm really hoping that they'll pick up on this ending for Harriman and, and kind of this, okay, this man's grown a pair. He, he's a man who can be a captain in the vein of somebody like a Sulu, like a Kirk. You know, give us somebody like that. So I'm hoping that that continues and, and we don't get more of the kind of wishy-washy Harriman that you know we kind of get used to in so many of the the, the things we see in literature mm -hmm. so I think um I guess I don't know if I were to rate this Chris I, I'd probably give it um seven out of ten command chair beamings excellent yeah so what about you Chris what, what would you give as a rating final thoughts there. Yeah, I really enjoyed the book as well. I think it did a really good job of of filling in that backstory about Dumara has great character growth for Sulu over time as we jump through the time periods. And I think for the most part, Peter David did a good job of writing a backstory to what we saw in Generations so that it actually makes sense. You know, whether it's what you thought it was or not, and I think in most cases, it's not what you were thinking it was going to be. I think it still fits in pretty well. Um, I think I would give it seven screwdrivers 
without the orange juice, which would be like, you know, like you order a virgin pina colada, for example, that has no rum in it. This would be the exact opposite right. of that, right? It's only the alcohol. Oh, I think that's a fantastic <laughs> idea, personally. Uh, more alcohol for everyone. All right. Well, Matthew, I'm glad we talked about this book. It was definitely good for me to prepare for One Constant Star when it comes out, because I, as I said earlier, had not actually read The Captain's Daughter in the past. And hopefully it was uh, helpful for our listeners as well. But it's not the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here, everyone, are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Dr. McCoy with Larry Nemechek. But, you know, when everybody else had their Kirk shirt or their Spock shirt, like the first uniform I had my mom make me was a McCoy uniform, of course. Earl Grey. The 7-7 Challenge. Did you know that Tim Russ was one of the possible choices for Commander Joy Lee But did you know he was also in Star Trek Generations? But did you know he was also served with Captain Sulu on board the Excelsior? I did know that, in fact. The Orb. Our Man Bashir Commentary. <laughs> I love Avery. <laughs> Tell me what happens next. <laughs> and the look, the look up at an angle. He's yes. not even looking at Bashir. He's no. looking up at the angle. Tell me it's... what happens next. <laughs> the ready room. Specter of the guy. They just—they're so quick to jump to conclusions. Like the guy gets shot in front of them, and they're like, "Death is the only thing that's real on this planet." And they're like, "Wait a minute! <laughs> How do you know that? That could just be a total figment of your imagination as well." To the journey. Favorite son commentary. Yeah, Janeway is... Uh, you better get more coffee, sweetie. It's going to be a long day. Ensign Kim is going to put you through some hell. Warp 5. Alternate outcomes of the Zindi crisis. But inter the Enterprise is heavily damaged. We're talking practically destroyed. Everything but a shell. Maybe the saucer section is the only thing that's still around. And... 80% of the crew dies. Commentary, Trek stars. Rick Berman and Star Trek. He's kind of a moving target, so he found some dimensionality. He's made it into a cube, yeah. and so he was able to move things around in there. A Borg cube. Mm. <laughs> Continuing mission. Star Trek Equinox. John Savage actually came up with the premise for the story, but we, they needed somebody to flesh it out, to develop it, and... So they sent me John's premise, and I just, well, it expanded into the script for the project that we're doing. Melodic Treks. The Borg in Music. In when when they released it as a Blu-ray, they combined them. They connected yeah. them, and there's the no feature. delay. There's they, they cut off that music, and then it's just like, oh, that didn't work. Literary Treks. Rise of the Federation, Tower of Babel. Saval talks about this idea that, you know, people mutually consent to abide by these rules for their collective benefit. The idea that, you know, absolute unfettered freedom is just a ridiculous idea. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get in on our daily Trek talk. We have new Trek talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from our website. So go grab the shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. 
Well, if you'd like to share your thoughts with us on The Captain's Daughter or anything else we talked about in news today, maybe you want to tell us what you think about Q being in the Abrams verse, you can do that in a number of ways. You can go to our website at trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about this show, Star Trek books, comics, TV series, anything you want to discuss about Star Trek, you can do it over there. And if social media is your thing, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you can find us on Twitter, where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, when you're not, uh, you know, hanging out in a replica of Casablanca, trying to see if you can pick up a mysterious woman, where can people find you? Well, Chris, uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me doing the orb with you where we talk about all things Deep Space Nine. So uh, if you want to know uh, what we might think of a JJ verse Deep Space Nine, maybe that's a good oh, uh, topic for that us. That would be Chris. an interesting topic. Man. Wouldn't it? Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, um, you can find us there. And then, of course, uh, I have my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Now, Chris, when we are not sitting around the reprimand just desirously looking at a plate of chocolate mousse and whether or not you should actually plunge in for that succulent bite, where can we find you? Well, you know, I like to to know if it's good or not first. So I like to invite Troy over and let her show me how to eat it. That's probably a good yeah, plan. Riker yeah. told me. Well, and then by the time she's done, there isn't any left. So you'd even get to try it. Well, no, I ordered two. So I got to take oh, care of it. Oh, that's wise. You know. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> Don't let her see that second right. one though, Chris. You'll never get a bite in edgewise. So. <laughs> I know. I keep ordering over and over and over and over. And then I say, you know, I've never Ooh. seen anyone eat 10 chocolate mousses before. She's going to need a lot more workout sessions with uh, Dr. Crusher. Yeah. That's going to be the case. And that'd be A-OK with you, right? Uh, with Dr. Crusher, yeah. For sure. All right. Well, yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, besides doing the orb with Matthew, you can find me on Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. You can also find me on Matterstream, which is about science and social issues and topics like that. You can find me on Continuing Mission, which is all about independent films and productions like Star Trek Continues, Axanar, Renegades, and such. And then you can find me every week on The Ready Room with hosts from all around the network and special guests as we talk about Star Trek news and all five live-action Star Trek series. So check out those shows and see what we're talking about over there. Before we let you go, we'd also like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com, the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere. Go pick up Peter David's New Frontier books or any other book that you like and get that book absolutely free as a Trekafilm listener just for trying Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up today. If you decide at the end of the trial not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that audiobook. But I know you're going to love Audible and you're going to want to stick with it. So again, try it at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. By doing so, you'll be helping us keep literary treks coming to you every week. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show 
and the network. Thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. Finding out that uh, you're got a baby, you're a baby daddy. Sulu. <laughs> you're a baby daddy, uh, Sulu. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Wait, that might be the title of the episode. I think we just named the show. <laughs> <laughs> you're a baby daddy, Sulu. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> that's the best literary tracks title ever. <laughs> god all right oh man you should put this at the end as a stinger <laughs> <Because> definitely <laughs> oh, okay